Father, first I pray whenever we speak, any one of us, I would ask that we would be able to take a back seat uh, to what your spirit wants to do or communicate through us. Pray that we could decrease and that you would increase. We thank you for your word that provides insight and wisdom, and we pray that you would grant that to us today. For your word says in the book of James that if we ask for wisdom, you give it to us without finding fault. And so that is our prayer, but most of all, Lord, this morning we ask that you would be lifted up and glorified, not only through your word and the reading of it and the study of it, but also in our lives. And we know this is your desire, and so we ask for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, see if you can guess what I'm talking about here. The chicken, the drag, the jerk, the monkey, the strut, rotary phone, busy signal, VCR, phone booths, 35 millimeter cameras, Polaroid cameras, dial-up internet, Walkmans, floppy disks, library cards, Hollywood video, beepers, directory assistants, or how about this one? 8531212 TV tubes words like <clears throat> groovy out of sight righteous right on green stamps readers digest typewriters an eye touch a PDA overhead projectors Thomas brothers newspapers and magazines slides and slide projectors yellow pages white pages probably can't say that anymore right uh, <clears throat> yellow cabs Now, what am I talking about here? You may know some of those things, and some of those things you may not know. I could also talk about Abba Zabba and Nekos and a few things like that. Well, these are things that have been gobbled up in part by our traditions in this country. These are things of the past. These are things that we really no longer participate in either receiving, consuming, or acting in. Can you imagine a company that got involved in making even more eight-track cassette players? Could you imagine that? Uh, That would be a foolish endeavor. Not only would it be not profitable, but it would be a waste of the most valuable commodity, which is time. But there are those who want to keep doing things the way that they have always been done. They're so stuck on traditions that Anything new or that is done in a different manner is usually taken as an offense. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for such things as these. In Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, I'm going to read it to you. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands. 
He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And going on in verse 9 through 13. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might have otherwise received from me is Corban, that is a gift devoted to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you handed down. And you do many things like that. So the Pharisees, they had these traditions, that, and they were very much unwilling to part with them. Uh, rules about work and washing a hands, Corbin, and other such things. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, the religious leaders were so worried that things would change just too dramatically. In John chapter 12, Verses 17 through 19, they recognized the influence that Jesus was having on the entire population. Things were changing when Jesus showed up. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So things were changing when Jesus showed up. All these traditions that they had, all these things that were in place for centuries, they said, what are we going to do now? These things are coming to naught. We're not going to practice these anymore because of what Jesus is doing. And specifically, they had a really hard time with him healing on the Sabbath. So what did Jesus do? He healed more on the Sabbath. Every time they objected, it seems like he went out and he healed again on the Sabbath. They were so worried about losing that which was established that they eventually killed Jesus. And although the coming of the Messiah had been prophesied in Scripture when Jesus appeared, things were going to change forever. And today is the day that we commemorate and celebrate the arrival of Jesus the Messiah in Jerusalem. That event took place 2,000 years ago, and as a result, the entire world has changed. Now, this is what is known as the beginning of the Passion Week. This is where Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and presented himself to the people of Israel, the Israelites, the Jews who were there in uh, the old town in the Temple Mount there. Now, with Israel... They had all these festivals that they needed to celebrate. They had these spring festivals and fall festivals. In spring, there's the Passover, uh, which we will celebrate, or the um, Resurrection Day we'll celebrate next Sunday. Then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits, the bringing in of the first of the harvest. And that's what Jesus is. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Then there's Pentecost, which is a feast of weeks, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Then there's the fall festivals, the trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. And the tabernacles reminds the Jews that they were in the wilderness uh, for a period of time. And that's where they build their little structures where they can still see through them and the wind can blow through them. And they usually put palm branches 
all over the tops of them and on the sides. Now, Palm Sunday is one week before Easter, and it is the final seven days of the life of Jesus before his crucifixion. And on Palm Sunday, we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, as recorded in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And all four Gospels actually have this recorded in them. There are what is known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And their accounts are pretty much the same. And John's is a little bit different. It's a shorter account of what took place here. But this last week, when Jesus was on earth, is talked about in all four of the Gospels. And Matthew dedicates two-fifths of its gospel just to this last week. Mark, three-fifths of that gospel is dedicated to the last seven days of Jesus' life here on earth. And Luke, one-third of his gospel is dedicated to that. And John takes almost 50% of his gospel for this last week. And that's why I think it's kind of important if the gospels dedicate so much time to it. But if you'd like to turn over to Luke, we're going to read one of the longer versions of this time of the triumphal entry. Luke chapter 19 is where I'm going to be reading from, beginning in verse 28, and I'm going to read through verse 48. So Luke chapter 19, verse 28 it says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage at Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he set two of his disciples or sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. On the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple in, in the Gospel of Mark. This is actually on the next day. Uh, the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So some things <clears throat> that the gospel accounts have in common 
And some things that are only recorded maybe in one of the gospel are as follows. First, Jesus came from the east. If you have ever looked at pictures of Jerusalem, normally uh, the pictures of the Temple Mount come from the top of the Mount of Olives. It is on the east side of the Temple Mount, and you look towards the Dome of the Rock. And where the Dome of the Rock is, just to the right of that is where the Temple would have been. And there's a road that leads down and goes back up to the Gate Beautiful, at least in the time of Jesus. And that's where he would have entered. There's also the Steps of Solomon that are around the south side. And that's by the Kidron Valley over there. And you can go around that way as well to get to the temple mount and if you enter from that way today you would get up to the dome of the rock so that's where jesus is coming from from the east and all three synoptic gospels have that account bethpage and bethany at the hill called the Mount of olives and then all of them have the account excuse me all three synoptic gospels have the account of the disciples two of them being sent to go get this baby donkey now one of the gospel accounts says also the mother uh, the mother donkey they grabbed the mother donkey and the baby donkey and they would probably have led the mother donkey so that the baby donkey would follow after they set jesus upon it and then they threw their cloaks on the donkey and then they threw cloaks on the ground as well as palm leaves and they would have put those branches as well in front of jesus and that was a way just to honor a king in Second Kings chapter 9, verse 13, <clears throat> this is where Jehu is king. It talks about them doing this. It says, they hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So this is just repeating something that would have been done in the Old Testament. It is also... Uh, something that fulfilled a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. So in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, different phrases are listed. Most of them uh, have some of the same ones, like blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, or blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke says, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Mark says, Hosanna. Um, Mark also says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And John records that they said, blessed is the king of Israel. So several things were being said like this as Jesus approached. Now, he probably would have approached from the south coming up on that long road. And the whole way, if you, and they'll take you there today, if they'll walk the same road that goes from the Mount of Olives all the way down, the one that Jesus would have taken. Now, we also know that this word Hosanna means save or save now or save us. And that's what they were looking for Jesus to do was to save them from the Romans. They weren't looking for Jesus to save them from their sins because remember the next week, uh, the next weekend for us, they would have been shouting crucify him. They just wanted the powers that be to be displaced and that Jesus would come in and they knew that he had fed the 5,000 and 3,000 on another occasion and that he was healing everybody and that's what he did in this Passion Week. He sat with the people and he taught them. We have Jesus' longest message that he delivered in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Luke 21 and Mark 13. 
the Olivet Discourse, which is there. He told them of the things that would come in the future, but he wept over the city and he also healed the people. So when he went in the temple courts, if somebody was blind, he would heal them. If somebody was crippled, he would heal them. And apparently he did this without measure. Anybody who would come to him, he would heal. Now, if you have a crowd of thousands of people and they would have been thousands, maybe even ten thousands of people coming in to see Jesus there, Uh, There's no way that the Pharisees could have come in and grabbed him and killed him. They just would not allow it to have happened. Now, he taught the people, but also when he was going up to the Temple Mount, coming down from the Mount of Olives and going back up to the Temple Mount, he was being worshipped. And this is one time where he received the worship. That's why the Pharisees said, command your disciples to stop doing this. And he said, you know, if I do that, the rocks are going to cry out. This was his moment that had been prophesied. It was also the day, the 10th of Nisan, uh, not Nisan like the vehicle, but Nisan is the first month in the Jewish calendar. And on the 10th of Nisan is when they selected the sacrificial lamb. And so you can see the symbolism that is there, the foreshadowing of the picking the lamb for the sacrifice for Passover. Passover, well, Jesus is presented to the nation of Israel as the Passover lamb. So uh, we need to recall what the Passover is all about, in case you have forgotten, whether you here in the sanctuary or those on the internet. If you remember, the people of Israel, the Israelites, they had gone down to Egypt because there was a severe famine in the land, and it was there that God determined that the nation of Israel should really be multiplied out. Uh, There were about uh, 70 people, I believe, that came down to Egypt. And when they left, it's one to three million people over 400 years. And at that time, God wanted to remove them and take them to uh, the land of Israel, uh, also known by some as the land of Canaan. And to do that, there had to be 10 plagues that Moses brought upon the Egyptians. Now, the Israelites experienced some of those, but the most severe ones at the end, especially the taking of the firstborn in the final uh, act, the final plague that came upon them, that later became known as the Passover. And for centuries to come, they would be celebrating this Passover. And on the Passover, they had to get a lamb without blemish, Without defect of any kind, they were to slaughter the lamb. They were even to get together as families, and as families they would have participated in eating the sacrificial lamb with their sandals on and with staff in hand ready to leave. And when they took that lamb and they ate the lamb, they were also to take the blood of the lamb and put it on both doorposts and the top cross member of the door. And when the angel of death came through the nation of Egypt he would have recognized that blood covering the door and the angel of death would have passed over that house. That's why it's called Passover. And because of that, the spare, the sparing of the firstborn of each household uh, was, uh, was done. There, there was no uh, dying of the firstborn, whether it be animal, beast, or whether it be a human being. And so That is what instituted the Passover for every generation to come, and it was a yearly feast that was to be observed. And if somebody did not observe it, they were to be cut off from their people. So the people that were there, there was a, a contrast when Jesus shows up. They call him the king, but he came as a servant. 
He came as one who was lowly and humble. He wasn't showing this tremendous victory. Also, he did not come to conquer, but he came to bring love and mercy to the people. So a couple of contrasts are taking place there. Now, there is a setup for this as well. We have the Passover, and Jesus is called the Passover lamb, which we'll get to in a moment. But if you recall, every single year that we have this, and last year we didn't. I don't know if you remember that, but we didn't have the celebration in church last year, nor did we celebrate Easter in church. But this year uh, we get to do so. But every year that I have talked about it, I've taken you to Daniel chapter 9. I'd like you to turn there. And I want you to see that this is actually a setup from the Old Testament times. The prophet Daniel prophesied that Jesus would show up on a particular day. And in Daniel chapter 9, this talks about the anointed one or the Messiah, that he would be coming to his nation, the nation of the Israelites, and presenting himself. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, it says... Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, this is referring to Jesus here, the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, which is a total of 483 years. These sevens are just simply referring to years. They're not referring to days or weeks. And it will be built with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After 62 sevens, a total of 434 years, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. This is referring to his crucifixion. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's referring to uh, what would we know as the Antichrist. Uh, it's the Antichrist, the definite article, uh, which is there. Uh, not the indefinite, which would be a uh, Antichrist. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, and this is referring to the Antichrist again. One seven is a total of seven years. In the middle of that seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of the temple, he will seven an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So there's going to be a final kingdom that is set up. Now, we also know that Daniel uh, interpreted the dream of Nebuchadnezzar that there would be several different kingdoms that would be uh, reigning over the earth, six different great ones in all. And it began with Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, with Nebuchadnezzar, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and Rome. But in the end times, we know that Nebuchadnezzar's dream was there would be clay mixed with iron. That will be the final time when the Antichrist shows up. Now, this individual who used to work in Scotland Yard, after reading Daniel chapter 9, uh, verses 25 through 27, decided that he would try to figure out the time that the anointed one would come and would be cut off. His name was Sir Robert Anderson, and he wrote the book, The Coming Prince. Again, he was from Scotland Yard, so he was an investigator. And he combined the Jewish and Babylonian calendars, a 360-day year, 469 weeks, and a 360-day year, which totals 117 
excuse me, 173,880 days or 483 years. So he, he made all these calculations and you have to hop back and forth to these different calendars. And the Jewish calendar of today is not the calendar that we use. And when we examine the period between March 14th, 445 BC and April 6th, 32 AD and uh, correct for leap years, we discover that the 173,880 days exactly to the very day from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the triumphal entry. It was prophesied exactly when he would show up. Now, I know I went through that very quickly. Uh, you can get Sir Robert Anderson's The Coming Prince and look it up. You can go back on the internet and listen to this message afterwards and you can try to do the calculations yourself if you'd like to do so. And by the way, this decree in March 14th, 445 B.C. Uh, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given by Artaxerxes Longimanus. And, and so we have records of these things. And the Jews should have known this, just like the Jews knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But for some reason, they didn't remember that when it came to Jesus to see where he was born because they said, well, he's a Nazarite. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? They didn't even try to find out, well, was he born in Bethlehem? If they would have done the investigation, they would have found out. Now, maybe some of them did. And if they did the investigation, they didn't want anybody else to know about it. They wanted to suppress the information, just like today. They want to suppress information. And that way, if you suppress the information, you can control the people. And, and you can put them under a heavy burden to do what you want. And you can persecute them. And that's exactly what the Jewish leaders did at the time. And even persecuting, like I said, Jesus until they killed him. And so we have done the calculation there, and that calculation is accurate. Now, I was listening to somebody else that didn't believe that that was the day that Jesus was prophesied to enter. They thought it was the day of Jesus' baptism. And some of those um, Bible teachers that are out there, and by the way, this particular Bible teacher, I, I really like listening to him. He's wrong in a couple of things like uh, theonomy, which is installing God's law here today. I think I mentioned that before. Like, for instance, if rape was committed, the death penalty would be installed. I don't know that that would be such a bad thing uh, to have that happen, especially protecting our women. But they want to take all the Old Testament law and they want to install it today. Not the ceremonial law, but all the legal ramifications. Like if you stole something from somebody, you had to pay them back 20%, which that's a great idea. If somebody steals something, make them pay back, make them recompense or uh, repay that which was taken. And so some of those laws would probably be a good thing for us, but they want to install all of that and almost cause the United States to become a theocracy where we just go to God and his word and that's the law and that's it. We add nothing to it uh, and all laws concerning welfare and all of that would be wiped off the books. And not that any of those things would be bad, but it would be a heavy yoke for the people to endure and many people would turn away from Christ as a result of that. Jesus was not interested in transforming the culture. He was not interested in transforming the power structure. He was in interested in transforming the heart. If you change the heart, 
everything else just naturally changes. And we can encourage each other once the heart is changed because we all want to do what is wrong in the flesh, but we get together and we go, well, you know, you've done wrong, but we can turn that thing around and everybody would be in agreement if, in fact, the heart was changed. Now, this decree... Uh, that to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, we know that this took place under Nehemiah in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and, and it's all recorded there what Nehemiah did. He was the cup uh, bearer to Artaxerxes. And, and so all of this is historical. And again, as I've said several times, this is the only reason why I believe the Bible, because it is prophetic. Now, as far as the days are concerned with what we have in the death, burial, and resurrection of the triumphal entry, we know that if you started counting the days, day one is the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, uh, day number two, which would be Monday, Jesus clears the temple. On Tuesday, he goes to the Mount of Olives and he teaches there. On Wednesday, uh, it's called Holy Wednesday or Spy Wednesday, according to uh, those in the Catholic tradition on day five, Passover or the Last Supper, that would be called Monday, Thursday, M-A-U-N-D-Y, Monday, Thursday. And then there's the trial and crucifixion, death, burial. That would be on Friday and Saturday. He would be in the tomb and resurrection on Sunday. Now, next week, I'll get into it a little bit. Some people believe that Jesus was probably crucified on Wednesday. Some say on Friday and some people combine the two of those and say, no, it was Thursday. It doesn't matter, really, when it gets down to it. Jesus was crucified. Now, some people would say, well, if he's not in the grave for three days, it does make a difference, and the Bible is incorrect. And Now, since it's prophetic, I don't believe the Bible's incorrect. Uh, it, you just have to do a, a elementary perusal through the scriptures to know that this is a document that has been delivered by God. And in its original autographs, we don't have to doubt it. Now, are there some translational discrepancies? Yes, there are. Now, why are there some of those? Because men, they transferred the original language, which were taken from copies into other languages and there are hundreds and hundreds of translations of the Bible. And so because it has been translated so many times, it doesn't mean that they're in error. People just have a different way of communicating over the years or they have different understandings. Uh, you've heard me mention before that First John 5, 7 and 8 refer to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the King James. Well, that was an overzealous scribe just inserting that into the text, and it should not be in there. And everybody knows that it's there, but it doesn't change the doctrine. Are there three that bear witness in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes, there are, but somebody wanted to put that in just to make sure uh, it was clear, and they were adding to the Scripture. Another one is uh, some overzealous scribes uh, for reasons of translations and and Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. The number 666 was translated once as 616, and they have reasons for doing that. And, and we know what those changes are, and so we don't have to worry or fret uh, about is it accurate. Even in the NIV, there are some verses that are taken out of the text, and people who are King James-only advocates, they come along and say, see, it's heresy, it's not there. But if you look, it's a footnote at the bottom. They say the oldest, most reliable 
manuscripts do not contain this. Or Mark chapter 16. If you have an uh, NIV, it will say that in the text in Mark chapter 16. At the bottom, it'll say the oldest, most reliable manuscripts do not contain this portion in Mark chapter 16. So let's do a little bit of review here. What exactly it is that we're looking at. The Jews exited from Egypt by God using the ten plagues. And remember those ten plagues that were there? We had flies. We had gnats. We had frogs. We had water that turned to blood. Uh, We had the Passover. We had the darkness. We had the hail that came over the people. All, All of these different plagues were meant to combat the gods of the day of the Egyptians. And God was, our God, Yahweh, was very successful in doing so. And so the firstborn we know survived was the Passover lamb or by the Passover lamb that was spoken about Jesus concerning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, it says, Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are for Christ Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So even the New Testament says Jesus was the Passover lamb. And again, the prophecy that was in Daniel chapter 9, he was prophesied when he would come and when he would show up. Now, Jesus was prophesied to come to Jerusalem in Daniel. Jesus changed the worship system the style of the Jews, the old covenant, and changed it into the new covenant. The church and the covenant of blood, our salvation is based on faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. All of that was changed. Now the Jews today, they still celebrate this old system. The problem is they don't have the temple in Jerusalem. Now do the Jews want to build the temple? Yes. You've heard me say on numerous occasions, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem is set up so that they might rebuild the temple, and they are ready to set this up. Now, uh, they're being prevented from doing so, I believe, and one of the reasons I believe that is true is because we are still here. Uh, We know that in order for the Antichrist to come on the scene based on a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view of the scriptures, when the Antichrist shows up, we have to be removed first because that which is holding him back is the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We are salt and light on this earth. We are the ones that help preserve uh, the earth, uh, the world system, the culture as it is. If we just step back and we have no involvement in the culture, the culture will eventually start sliding. Now, there was a time, I believe, during the 50s and 60s where the church was told, you know, we're not to get involved in the church. We're not to, or excuse me, in government. We're not to talk politics or anything like that. And kind of look where we are today as a result of that. And now we're getting involved and things are happening on a positive note. But will we be successful? You know, just as a side note, this guy that I've been listening to, one of several uh, on YouTube, he, he believes that we are to go out and claim all governments for the kingdom of God. And we're to set right, we're to put God's kingdom here on earth and establish it. And once it's established, 
Jesus will come back after that. There is no rapture. And this particular guy, he assigns uh, the end times view that we hold to, uh, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view of the return of Christ. He, He ascribes all that to the first century. And eventually I'll end up going through all of that. It's called a preterist view of that and he he thinks that when the temple was destroyed and all of the things that you look back in history of what Josephus talked about he'll relate to stuff like that and say see it all happened then for instance uh, scripture says uh, the gospel will be preached in the whole world and you can find one verse that says and the gospel has gone out into the whole world but if you take that in proper context well it's not meaning the entire world Uh, We can use that type of uh, hyperbolic uh, language when, for instance, if you say you went to a gathering together and you would say, everybody was there. Well, is everybody there? No, not everybody is there, but it seems like everybody is there. And when you say something like, the gospel went out to the whole world. Well, no, it didn't. It didn't reach China. It didn't reach Mongolia uh, during that time. I know Thomas is said to be the one to go to India and take the gospel there, but it had not circumvented the entire globe uh, at that time. And, and that's what I believe it's referring to. But somebody who has that particular view, a post-millennialist view, they will look at the scriptures and they'll look at them in a symbolic fashion. And they start getting to the point of being absurd when they do so instead of interpreting the scriptures like in a narrative fashion and taking it literally. And so there are those that believe the end times view of Jesus coming back. He is our Passover land, setting up his kingdom here. His kingdom is not yet fully realized. Like, for instance, I would ask you, are you saved? And you would say, well, yes, I am saved. And I would say, are you fully saved? Have you realized the full encompassing salvation that God has for us? Well, not yet. Not all of it. We are saved on the inside. We have new life on the inside, but your body's not glorified. Now, you may stand in front of the mirror saying, my body is definitely glorified after you (laughs) do something, but others would have a tendency to disagree with you and you're going to pass away from this life. And so we are saved, but not fully yet. God's kingdom is here and it is within us, but it's not fully yet. And in scripture, I think the proper view that we're supposed to have is it's not all realized yet. But it is true that the kingdom of God is here. But who owns this world, so to speak? Who is the God of this age? We know that it is Satan. And he has not been totally suppressed. Nor do I think we will totally suppress him before the tribulation comes. But if you take a non-literal view of scripture, you can easily fall into that trap. And I like listening to people sometimes that I don't agree with. Just to, to get some muscle to go back and go read the scriptures and make sure that I'm giving it to you in a proper fashion that I'm not misinterpreting you have to know what if like you're in a battle you want to know what your enemy believes not that this guy is an enemy or anyone in the scriptures or that teaches the scriptures on the internet so to speak is the enemy I think most people in most denominations they are fellow brothers and sisters but we don't have to be disagreeable about disagreeing about the particular scriptures so with that little rant I'm going to go back here so there was an old way of doing things 
that the Jews would hold on to, the sacrificial systems, and they're still holding on to it today. This is the first day of their Passover celebration, and it's going to end next Sunday. And during this particular week, there's things that they do all week long, and they will have the Seder meal, and they'll have the four cups of wine that are in front of them, and they'll have the the lamb. And by the way, if you go to a Jewish Seder today, you usually get a choice of fish or chicken, which kind of ruins the whole uh, typology which is there. If they were going to serve you a real Passover lamb, you're going to eat some lamb. You're going to take that little furry thing that looks so cute and innocent, and you're going to slit its throat and take the blood, and you're going to do all of that stuff. Now, that doesn't happen in most Jewish homes. Uh, and, you know, that's probably a good thing, but they will serve the lamb, which is there. And then they'll get the, the matzah bread. Now, we, we serve the matzah bread, or we did before the pandemic came here. Uh, we had the, the cracker is what it was. Well, sometimes the Jewish people, what they'll do is they'll come walking in with a pizza box, and you'll think, pizza for Passover? No, they open up the box and there's this big round flat piece of cracker and it has no oil in it. It is just the flour and the water and they bake that and there's pictures you can see where they're just picking up the whole loaf and it's really just a big round cracker and everybody takes from that one loaf and that's the symbolism of our communion service is we take from one loaf, you break it off and and you eat of it, but it is simply the cracker. So uh, they maintain that Old Testament style of worship, which God said, it is passing away, it is old, it is something that is of the past, and we have the new covenant. Now, as an unbeliever, somebody who is an unbeliever, practicing the old things, God asks us, when we are unbelievers, to give up the things of the world. Now, what are the things of the world? Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, anger, dissension, factions. All of those things are the things of the world. God gives us a new heart, a soft heart, a heart that is filled with love and mercy and kindness, compassion, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things he gives to us. And he asks us to suppress that which is of the old nature. Now, do you remember also in the 60s and 70s, there was this psychological therapy uh, which they would put you in a room and they would encourage you. It was a padded room, by the way. Uh, they would encourage you to go in there and just scream at the top of your voice, to hit the walls, to kick them, to just get rid of the anger, just get it all out and you'll all feel better. Well, just the opposite happened. It made me people more angry it made them more violent and god says no you're not supposed to encourage that kind of thing you're supposed to crucify it which means you're supposed to kill it your paul said he buffets his body to bring it into subjection uh, to christ and and that's what we're supposed to do we're not supposed to just give in uh, to our feelings but the unbeliever is called to get rid of the old life and exchange it for the new one, one that will last forever. And we all need to be saved from the judgment that lies ahead for the entire world, and that judgment entails existing in an eternal place of darkness and torment. Now, that's Scripture. Now, this last week I did a memorial for an old friend, and 
I gave the gospel and I didn't pull punches, so to speak. I didn't turn to the people and, and say, if you don't have Christ, you're going to hell. I, I didn't say that to them, but I gave the gospel, let them know there's only one of two places that you can go. You can either go to heaven or you can go to hell. And I told them, there is no place in between. There is no way station. There is no layover, uh, so to speak. There is no purgatory. And I told them, I instructed them how they can receive Jesus Christ and go to be with uh, my friend and friends of everybody that was in there uh, to where he is. And I told them that he's not dead. He simply just changed his address. And we're going to eventually go and see him. And so I, I gave them the gospel. And of course, I let them know Romans 10, 9, and 10. But for anyone who might be watching or listening to this later, we can get to that place of eternal bliss and eternal contentment by doing what the Philippian jailer did in Acts chapter 16, verse 29. This is when there was a great earthquake and all the, the rooms, the doors flung open. Uh, there and this jailer he came in and he was calling for a light to see if the prisoners were, were still there and he rushed in saw that they were and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and said sirs what must I do to be saved and they replied believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household and so that's what the unbeliever is called to do to forsake the ways of the world to forsake the old belief systems and come to Christ and you know the drill on this and confess Christ as Lord. Now the believer, if you are a believer, the question that needs to be asked is what traditions are you holding on to that Jesus wants you and me to forsake? Just like the Jews, you know, we feel comfortable with certain things. I I have been in homes where there was green, avocado green shag carpet. Now, you look at that and you go, what? what? And, and the furniture was orange and purple. Now, if you think about that for a moment, you go, whoa, that is so early 70s. That was the look at that time. And you know what the look in a room was before that? Paneling. You had paneling up in all the rooms. And what was before that? Wallpaper. You had wallpaper everywhere. I remember when we first moved into uh, our house, we, we put up wallpaper. Didn't it look great? So old, you know, it, it's not anything that we do today. Well, we have things that we feel comfortable with. They have been traditions for us. We just hold on to them. Now, those are just things. But what about the traditions that we hold to? It's the way I've always done it. That's the way I like it. And that settles it. This is how we're going to do it. And it's not that it's vital to do anything that particular way or believe a particular, particular way. We are just comfortable with that. We just hold on to it. For instance, certain thought patterns. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was raised, there was definitely an air of racism that was there. And it was just part of the community at the time. It was just there. And I remember uh, relatives saying things like, I don't quite understand that as a kid, but as an adult, I began to understand it. So certain thought patterns that we have about other people. And concerning racism, I think that there is a real danger for us when it comes to racism. And we see the reverse racism, which is out there. That if you are white, that 
you're racist just because you're white. What is the natural fleshly thing to do when you hear that? Become racist. To look at the other side now. How dare you call me racist? That is such a racist remark. And, and we could fall into that. And God says, no, don't. Just know that there are people of the world. They don't know how to live a godly life or think in godly ways. And God loves them just as much as he loves any one of us. And we're supposed to reach out to them and try to give them the gospel. If they will allow us. But they won't allow us. I don't know if you've seen the move lately to suppress any type of Christian thought or Christians in the military or Christians in government. They're trying to get rid of all of that because it is such an offense. But maybe it's thought patterns or maybe it's speech patterns. Have you mastered not using expletives yet? Uh, Not when you get frustrated or you're in a traffic situation where it's just so satisfying to say some of those words from the flesh and they, you may not think them, or you, excuse me, you may not say them all the time, but you're thinking them in your head, you know, and, oh, it's just so, and does God want you to get rid of either the thought or the speech? Or what about a habit, a particular habit that you have? And God says, it's best maybe to put that habit to the side. Maybe to get rid of it, maybe to crucify it. Or how about putting off, putting things off? You know, procrastination. Uh, it's great. You choose what you want to do and other things get put off to the side that need your attention right away. These are the traditions, the things that we used to hold on to that God says, I want you to put those things away. Or perhaps it's something that he wants you to turn to, a new endeavor or even a new ministry. Or imagine this, inviting somebody new to church. I don't know about you, but when I was a young believer, it wasn't very hard for me to do that. I believe everyone's a sinner and they need to hear the gospel. And so I invited everyone. Uh, When I was in church as a a, a medium-aged believer, if somebody said that they were new in church, my periscope went up and right after service, I was in their face. Would you like to come to Bible study? And, And I would invite them right then. And we got people coming to Bible study because of it. And you'd be surprised about those who want to come. They want to find out about God. Now, it may be difficult for uh, people who are older to do something like that. But everybody passes from this life. And we need to reach out to someone new. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think Jesus wants you to reach out to somebody new and invite them to church or invite them to Bible study? Is this even a question? It's really rhetorical, but are we doing it when we have the chance to do so? See, that's the big thing. It's stepping out. It's outside of our comfort zone, especially in this day and age. The interpersonal communication is becoming very difficult because everyone's wearing a mask. They have a mask on and they freak out. If you don't have a mask on, you got to put the mask on. But then if you go to the bank, they say, leave the mask on, but take your hat off. We want to see your eyes. It's like, if you don't have one mask on, they tell you to put two masks on. And have you sanitized your hands yet? And all of this stuff, it's just get away from me. And as believers, we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to separate ourselves in such a way. We're supposed to let them know we're right here. I care about you. Would you like to come to church? Would you like to come to Bible study? Would you like to hear the gospel? That old tradition of let someone else do it needs to be buried and needs to be crucified. 
That old tradition, I'll let somebody else witness to him. That's not my gift. That needs to be crucified. That needs to be buried. And it, not, it should never be resurrected. So all of these things, if you were to ask Jesus, what do you want me to do? I don't even think I have to answer that. If you have the Spirit of God in you and you're listening to him, there's going to be somebody, even this week, that God puts in your path. And he's going to say, invite them, give them the gospel. Show them some type of mercy, some type of compassion. And that's how we're supposed to live, being expectant that God is going to do something in us for the sake of others, for the sake of God being glorified. I would say, just ask Jesus, and he'll let you know what he wants you to do. My prayer for you is that you're able to crucify the flesh that you would be able to do God's will in every circumstance, that you would not pay attention to the thoughts in your mind that either come from the enemy or from your own inadequacies or your own fears that I can't do that, I can't reach out like that. Let the Spirit of God guide you. And if you don't think you can do it, well, you can't do it under your own steam. You have to have God's Holy Spirit guiding and directing you. And that is my prayer. May God direct you, fill you full of his spirit. May he give you the strength and the courage to reach out to others that you may not even know that you see somebody in an elevator and you strike up a conversation. What a great time to strike up a conversation. You know, something like, oh, you're going to floor six. Well, you know, the number 666 is the number of the Antichrist. And let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And he's the savior of the world. And you could do something like that. Of course, that might slap him upside the head with reality and not want to talk to you and think that you're a weirdo or something. But you know what I'm talking about. God can open your mouth. He can give you the words of wisdom to be lighthearted, to be communicative to those who are around you and to share the gospel. So let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give those who are in here and those who are listening through the internet, that you would give them strength and wisdom and a filling of your spirit. They might do your will in all situations. And Father, you knew we would have a hard time in this life, but you knew also that we would have access to joy in the midst of trouble. And so as our pandemic continues as travel is restricted, as relationships are curtailed, we would ask that you would help us to go against the flow, that we'd be able to reach out, speak out, help out, bring the gospel and share your love with all that we know. And we'll do so with your help. In Jesus' name, and everyone said...